The Coney Island apartment has been torn down and replaced with a 20-story building of yellow brick. But in the 1940s, Woody Guthrie, his wife Marjorie, and his kids lived in a small apartment on the first floor at 3520 Mermaid Avenue. Just like Woody's life, the home saw a lot of love and good times, but it also had some of his darkest moments. Even though his story starts in Oklahoma, we're beginning at the apartment two blocks from the beach, beyond the Wonder Wheel and the Cyclone. Welcome to Someone Lived Here, a podcast about the places cool people called home. I'm your host, Kendra Gaylord. This season, we'll be learning the stories of homes that are no longer standing. Woody first met Marjorie in Greenwich Village in 1942. She was 24, a modern dancer for the Martha Graham Company, and married. Her friend Sophie was also a dancer and wanted to do a show to Woody's famous Dust Bowl Ballads. He agreed to do it, but the rehearsals didn't go smoothly. Sophie had choreographed his recordings, and Woody did not play like his recordings. He explained, If I want to clear my throat, I play a few chords and do it. And if I want to think of the words for the next stanza, I play some more chords while I'm thinking about it. And if I want to leave town, I get up and leave town. But he didn't leave. During the multiple rehearsals, Marjorie and Woody became close friends, and then more. Woody was married too, but that had never stopped him in the past. This time, he took things slow. To him, Marjorie was different. She was smart and political. Her parents were both refugees from Romania, who had met in Philadelphia. Her mother was a published Yiddish poet. Woody was 29 and had spent the previous 10 years singing and writing songs. A lot of them are called protest songs, but they're also records. Not the album type, but the type that memorialize an event or a person, be it a mind collapse, a dust storm, a farmer's eviction, or a migrant worker's death. Some of these were the stories he'd experienced, and some were the stories he saw and heard. Woody Guthrie's full name was Woodrow Wilson Guthrie. He was born in Okama, Oklahoma in 1912. His childhood and teen years had a few ups and a lot of downs. He moved around a lot and ended up in Pampa, Texas. At the age of 21, he married Mary Jennings. She was Woody's best friend's little sister and was 16 at the time. The country was in the midst of the Great Depression. Woody and Mary lived in a shotgun shack right near her parents. They disapproved of the marriage since he wasn't Catholic. And because we're a podcast about houses, a shotgun house is the same style as a lot of the homes you see in New Orleans. They're usually less than 12 feet wide and have a similar layout to a railroad apartment, with the rooms lined up behind each other. Both Oklahoma and the Texas Panhandle were caught in a three-year drought, and severe dust storms were a part of life. The worst was called Black Sunday. It was mid-April when Mary and Woody stuffed wet newspapers around the doors and windows. You couldn't see a person sitting right next to you. He wrote many songs about the Dust Bowl in the years that followed. Many focused on this storm, like these lines from The Great Dust Storm. The storm took place at sundown. It lasted through the night. When we looked out next morning, we saw a terrible sight. We saw outside our window, where wheat fields they had grown, was now a rippling ocean of dust the wind had blown. It covered up our fences. It covered up our barns. It covered up our tractors in this wild and dusty storm. Woody and Mary became parents of a baby girl, Gwendolyn, a few months later. In less than a year, Woody would be traveling. It was always with the goal of getting work, since Pampa had little prospects. 
But he was, as his wife Mary said, restless. Woody was also self-aware. He wrote in a letter to his brother Roy's new wife, Your new husband isn't impulsive and high-strung like his brother, me. He takes everything orderly, decently, and in polished order. He is making his life, and I'm letting my life make me. And the life that was making him was unpredictable. He traveled around Texas, Oklahoma, and New Mexico, often hitchhiking or train hopping. He would sing on street corners and saloons, paint signs, and in a more consistent job, repair railroad tracks. What he seemed to like most was all the people. He wrote in a letter later, I had a crazy notion that I wanted to stay down and out for a good long spell so I could get to live with every different kind of person I could. Mary was pregnant with their second child when Woody headed for California. He left the money he saved from his time working on the railroad. He said that once he got a job, they would follow. He brought his paintbrushes and his guitar, but when he got to California, he didn't have either. The guitar was traded for food, the paintbrushes stolen. His prospects in California didn't look any better. A few months later, he met up with Jack Guthrie, also known as Oklahoma. Jack was Woody's cousin on his dad's side, and he wanted to be a famous singer. They had similar faces, but everything about them was different. Jack was a Western singer influenced by popular music. He had taught himself how to yodel. He was tall and wore well-fitting cowboy attire. Woody was five foot six and very thin. He wore clothes that didn't fit and usually didn't own more than what he had on. Woody sang in an older country style and felt Jack's songs were a little too sweet. Despite all that, they made an act together and headed to L.A. Jack was a natural salesman and got them shows and live performances. By the summer, they had a short, unpaid slot on a radio station. The producer thought Jack would appeal to a young female audience and Woody would appeal to an older crowd. The cousin's styles were so different that they didn't sing together beyond the theme song. A family friend, Maxine Chrisman, joined Woody on the radio show a few times. The two harmonized similar to an old church tradition called Shape Note, or Sacred Harp, Woody providing the tenor, harmony, and Maxine with the alto melody. As soon as they started performing together, letters started coming in. The songs reminded listeners of the homes they'd left behind. Soon, Woody and Maxine had their own radio show. The radio station offered them a year contract for $20 a week. Less than a year after Woody left Pampa, Texas, for California, he sent his wife $10 for her brother to drive her and the kids to L.A. It was November 1937. The show was successful, and on a clear day, the radio signal would cover much of the country. Maxine said they received about 10,000 pieces of mail in 10 months. That was the only way to show your support or your frustration with the show. They received an encouraging postcard from Woody's music idols, the Carter family, whose tunes he often adapted. After performing a harmonica piece, a song with the N-word in the title, Woody received a letter. No person or person of any intelligence uses that word over the radio today. I, for one, am letting you know that it was deeply resented. Woody apologized over the air. He no longer played the song under that title and no longer used the word. The show would end almost a year after it started. Maxine had anemia and would be out of breath after 30 minutes of performing. She loved music, but had never wanted to be a public performer. The owner of the radio station asked Woody to write for their newly formed liberal paper. He would write essays as he traveled around California, reporting on what he saw. 
and what he saw altered his perspective. He saw intense poverty, hunger, starving children. Agriculture associations continued to distribute pamphlets in Oklahoma and Texas, promising higher wages in California, even though those jobs didn't exist. But having more hungry people ensured the cheapest labor possible. One of his pieces in the light read, The constant dread of the wandering worker is to be arrested by some city officer, charged with idleness or vagrancy, and sent in almost chain-gang style to the bean patch to work without pay. When he returned to Los Angeles, he was changed by the injustice he had witnessed. Woody's radio show only paid if he had sponsors, and he had a lot less without Maxine. At the station, he befriended the host of a news commentary show, Ed Robin. Ed and his wife Clara were well-connected and politically active. They became close friends, and Woody would spend much of his time at their house, working and using their typewriter. Ed's friends would come by, and Woody would perform. On one occasion, the writer Theodore Dreiser came by. You might remember him from the Sailor Snug Harbor episode. He's the writer who interviewed the sailors who had retired there. When Theodore met Woody, he said, Ed's been telling me about your songs, but I don't think I've ever caught you on the radio. Woody responded, Then we start even, Mr. Dreiser, because I ain't read any of your books. But there was a writer Woody really respected, and it was through a friend of Ed that he met John Steinbeck. He had just published Grapes of Wrath, and Woody Guthrie felt like Steinbeck was writing history while it was happening. Woody wrote a summary of the book. It's about us pulling out of Oklahoma and Arkansas and down south and drifting around over the state of California, busted, disgusted, down and out, and looking for work. After reading Grapes of Wrath, the book's characters worked their way into Woody's songs. After traveling with Steinbeck in California and performing at migrant worker camps, he returned to L.A. His radio show was soon canceled, so Mary and Woody packed up their things and went back to Pampa, Texas. He then found himself working at the same drugstore he had when he was a teen. Mary wanted him to settle down and find a job. He did the opposite. But before he left, he visited a friend from his high school days. Evelyn Todd was a librarian. As a teen, Woody didn't care for school, but he read all the books on psychology, religion, and philosophy that the library in the basement of the city hall had to offer. After his research, he wrote a book on the fundamentals of philosophy and donated it to the library. Evelyn Todd put the handwritten manuscript on the shelves under Guthrie Woodrow Wilson. Almost 10 years after he donated the book, he came back to tell Evelyn about his travels and to talk about John Steinbeck. The library in Pampa is no longer in the basement of City Hall, and his handwritten psychology book didn't survive after Evelyn retired. But there is a book by Woody Guthrie on the shelves, his autobiography, Bound for Glory. Woody's friend, the actor Will Gear, told him to come to New York, so he did. But he almost didn't make it. He got a bus ticket all the way to Pittsburgh, but from there he hitchhiked in the middle of February. A forest ranger found him on the side of the road in a whiteout storm. The ranger's parents lived nearby, and he brought Woody there to recover. His feet and hands were tingling, and he said, I had really given up all hopes of ever seeing any human beings alive on this planet. Not long after getting to the city, Woody got a room at a hotel near Bryant Park. At the time, Irving Berlin's God Bless America was having a resurgence. Woody did not like the song and felt it was earnest and overly sincere. It was in his room on lined paper that he wrote, 
This land is your land. This land is my land. From California to the New York Island. He wrote six stanzas. Most of them you've heard before. But there's one that you probably haven't. There was a big high wall there that tried to stop me. The sign was painted, said private property. But on the backside, it didn't say nothing. This land was made for you and me. Woody didn't do much with the song until four years later, when he recorded this original version with 75 other songs. In those four years, he was very busy. He recorded folk songs for the Library of Congress. He got a sponsored radio show called Pipe Smoking Time, which he promptly quit. He went to Oregon to write songs about the Columbia River for the Department of the Interior. Mary had joined Woody in New York, and then to the Northwest. When he wanted to go back to New York again, she decided to stay in Portland. After seven years together, but mostly apart, they both knew it was over. He came back to New York and joined Pete Seeger's Almanac Singers. The two had become fast friends when Pete was working as an intern on the Library of Congress project. The group lived in Greenwich Village at 130 West 10th Street. To raise money for rent, they would throw parties in the basement. Jackson Pollock was one of the regulars. It was in that house where he worked on his autobiography. It was around then that he met Marjorie, the modern dancer who amazed him. They were good at keeping the affair secret, but Marjorie was pregnant and her husband found out. He wanted to raise the child as his own. Marjorie ended up leaving her husband. On February 6, 1943, Kathy Guthrie was born. Woody showed up to the hospital with his guitar and serenaded the staff. Marjorie rented a one-bedroom apartment at 3520 Mermaid Avenue. She wanted to be financially self-sufficient and started the Marjorie Mazia School of Dance. Woody's wife Mary was doing the same. Woody sent her a copy of his autobiography. She and their kids were not mentioned in it. She responded with divorce papers. She was a waitress in El Paso, Texas, and was providing for herself and her children. This divorce left Woody single, which also meant, in the midst of World War II, he was eligible for the U.S. draft. He joined the Merchant Marines. He was a dishwasher and a messman on several different voyages. He was on the SSC Porpoise when it was torpedoed off Utah Beach by a German submarine. Twelve men were injured. Woody went below deck with his guitar to play songs for the men who were confined to their quarters. After getting drafted to the U.S. Army, Marjorie and Woody got married. Their honeymoon was five days in that Mermaid Ave apartment. He was stationed outside of Las Vegas, and a month later, he was released from active duty. When he got back, he made himself at home on Mermaid Ave. His clothes barely filled a drawer, and his instruments were on the wall. Marjorie nailed a piece of wood into a corner that just fit his typewriter. The apartment was on the first floor of a small three-story brick apartment building. Next door was a kosher poultry market. Woody loved his daughter, Kathy. He kept a diary of her coos and burps. He would write down how she used words, turn them into poems, and then songs. He would play the songs for Kathy and her friends, and then he recorded two albums worth. One of those songs was called Goodnight Little Kathy. Kathy, who had just turned four, died in a fire at the Mermaid Ave apartment. Marjorie had gone across the street to get milk for Kathy's dinner. The firemen said that a short circuit in the electrical cord of the radio had started a fire on her mattress. Their 16-year-old neighbor, who lived upstairs, saw the smoke 
and heard her scream. He ran downstairs and doused the flames. She continued to talk and babble until she slipped into a coma eight hours later. Woody came home to a sign on the door, come to Coney Island Hospital. The loss was devastating. For Woody, it brought back the memories of an event in Woody's childhood that he had spent the last three decades trying to understand. Woody's older sister, Clara, had helped raise him. She gave him the nickname Woodblock. Their mother was often distracted and forgetful. When Clara was 14, her and her mother got in an argument. Clara said she put kerosene on her dress to scare her mother. The dress burst into flames, and she ran around the house. The neighbors who'd overheard ran over and smothered her with a blanket. She was still conscious, but couldn't feel the pain. She told everyone she was fine and asked Woody not to cry. She died later that night. Woody saw how the tragedy affected his mother. In his autobiography, he wrote, I dreamed that my mama was just like anybody else's. I saw her talking, smiling, working, just like other kids' mamas. But when I woke up, it would still be all wrong, all twisted out of shape. After another fire-related accident, his mother, Nora Guthrie, was sent to a mental hospital. There was a part of him that feared that what happened to his mother would happen to him. The two grieving parents welcomed their son, Arlo Guthrie, five months later. In the following years, they would have another son, Jody, and a daughter, Nora. Woody started drinking more, and Marjorie and Woody fought. Woody was 38 when he went back to Pampa, Texas, to visit his brother, Roy. They noticed a change in him. He was not so lively, didn't talk very much, and showed some signs of jerky movements in his body. When he returned to Coney Island, there were more verbal fights, and a physical fight that ended with Marjorie calling the police. She said in that fight she realized her husband was sick beyond alcoholism. After many different hospital stays, a doctor diagnosed Woody Guthrie with Huntington's disease, a fatal genetic disease of the nervous system. The symptoms are described as having ALS, Parkinson's, and Alzheimer's all at once. Although they were already divorced, Marjorie oversaw Woody's care. After placing an ad in a New York newspaper, she formed the Committee to Combat Huntington's Disease, which later became the Huntington's Disease Society of America, which still operates today. Woody Guthrie died at 55. Bob Dylan visited Woody in the hospital in the 60s. That night, he wrote a song to the tune of Woody's 1913 massacre, titled, Song to Woody. I'm singing you the song, but I can't sing enough. Because there's not many men that've done the things you've done. Here's to Cisco and Sonny and Lead Belly too, and to all the good people that traveled with you. Here's to the hearts and the hands of the men that come with the dust and are gone with the wind. Thank you for listening to this episode of Someone Lived Here. I've put together a playlist on Spotify where you can hear all the songs referenced in this episode and a few others that I just like. The book Ramblin' Man by Ed Cray was a resource for much of this episode. Thank you to the website Pop Spots NYC, run by Bob Egan, who managed to find the only photo of the apartment on Mermaid Avenue. If you want to support someone lived here, we just set up a Patreon, where you can get a sticker and other bonus stuff. Thank you to Tim Cahill for our music, and we'll see you next, next Monday.